A reading from the book of Proverbs. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The word of the Lord. A reading from 2 Corinthians. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For I see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and dust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
for where your Trevor for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Gospel of the Lord. The last number of weeks we've been in this letter from Paul to the church, the little body of believers in Corinth, in the city. And if you're here for the first time, you can see uh, it's sometimes a strange letter to read. Uh, There's some complicated sentences involved, not always sure what's happening. Um, But like any letter, you really can't treat one paragraph by itself, right? Even just looking at this one, you can see, however, there's some tension that exists between Paul and the people to whom he's writing, or there has been, certainly. He's defending himself. He opens by saying, we haven't wronged anybody. It seems somebody has suggested to them that he had. He's begging them to open their hearts to him as he has done for them. He doesn't want them to think ill of him. Now, we don't know the exact charge, if there was an exact charge. But there was, we know, a strong group that was disparaging Paul. And they had been doing so for some time. I always think of the great city of Corinth and the small churches that were there when I hear people talk about how the church needs to get back to the way it was in the the apostles' time, right? Uh, I don't think Paul would agree with this on that, right? Uh, It was a mess. He's already here telling the Corinthian church, don't be like the church in your own day, (laughs) right? They didn't have reason to revere Paul as we do. We have to reimagine ourselves a little bit. They didn't have centuries of people revering Paul in front of them. They saw how unimpressive he was, actually. We forget that. We have these 2,000 years of paintings and icons and recitations of great deeds that make him larger than life, and he wasn't larger than life. In fact, he talks about himself being a bit smaller than life. Not terribly impressive in appearance, and he says, not impressive in eloquence. I'm not sure he's being entirely honest about the eloquent part, but I don't know. His letters are confusing sometimes. But in any case, we imagine him as more than he was to his contemporaries. He went there as a kind of marginalized Jewish academic, misunderstood, persecuted, both by his own people and by others. And he went to this great city, one of the larger cities, a port city, calling people to repent from their sins, to believe in this crucified Jesus figure, and called everyone to prepare for him to come, now that he is raised from the dead, as judge over all. It was a tough message, right? And those who believed, thought, and lived like a church that was planted out of nowhere almost. And then they found itself, within a couple of years, without their founding pastor. You can imagine in the world of church planting, right? A church planter goes, and he starts and founds a church, 
and then he's gone in two years. And he doesn't bring in somebody else. It's not like they were scholars, on the whole, at least. They weren't grounded in years of seminary training and generations of deep thinking, setting out on a new pastoral search. They were on their own, more or less, depending on people from outside to come and to help them, to instruct them in the faith and who Jesus was and how to understand the scriptures. They didn't have the Gospels, at least most likely. They had the stories people told them, the message that Paul brought to them. They didn't even have what we call the Old Testament, not a copy of their own, at least, almost certainly. So don't imagine it like a pristine era of the church. It was a bit of a mess, and we can understand some of why it was a bit of a mess. Now, Paul, in this paragraph, he speaks of a harsh letter that he had sent. It's what we have in our Bibles as the first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Now, that is a hard-hitting letter. He walks through point after point that had caused division that they had written to him about, and the whole thing is interwoven from the beginning to the end with this constant theme of how their pursuit of wisdom was stupid. Folly is how it's translated, but it's just foolishness. He speaks of fretting over the outcome of his first letter, but that's because he rebukes and corrects and does it very strongly in that first letter. Pastorally, I can empathize with him about it. He did nothing like telling them what they wanted to hear. He was blunt, sometimes sarcastic, unwavering, and in one case even speaks of handing over what was undoubtedly a prominent figure in the community, hand him over to Satan, a way of saying, throw him out of the protection that is the church. It was a tough letter to send, and Paul knew it. And here we see Paul being a bit honest about his experience after sending it. He's narrating his decision to write such a letter, the angst of it after it's left his hand, right? His second thoughts, his fears, his wonderings, we can all sympathize with that, right? Did I misstep? Should I not have been sarcastic? He couldn't go with his letter to kind of play off, uh, see how it lands, and then adjust a little bit. And it wasn't his only burden that he was carrying. By this point in his career, in his life as a missionary, he's been stoned a few times. He's, that's, they throw him off a cliff and then throw big, heavy stones at him trying to kill him, right? It's not a fun experience. He's been whipped. He talks about all of these experiences he's had. He admits here, he calls it fighting without and fears within. It's the only time Paul admits, frankly, his own fears of this sort. Again, Paul wasn't superhuman. We have to get that image out of our mind a little bit. He was actually afraid. He was afraid for his own life, afraid for the mission, afraid that all that he had been doing was, as he says, in vain. And so, when he was afraid of this letter misstepping and harming the church that he was wanting to help, he was discouraged. And he sat there fretting about it. So he had sent Titus to go 
Titus was the one who took this letter to the church. Titus was on a route going around seeing all the different churches that they had started, taking with him a pile of letters for them, meaning Paul was left without him while he fretted. But now, of course, we read Titus has come back from his travels, a part of which was going to Corinth and reading that first letter and almost certainly then being open to questions about it. That would not be my favorite job, by the way, to go and read a letter that was all about rebuking that particular church. And I didn't write the letter, but you know they're going to shoot the messenger if they get angry, right? But Titus reports to Paul as he comes back that they not only received the letter, but they took it to heart, right? The letter was read, and it seems to have caused quite a stir, unsurprising, indignation, fear, a longing to be faithful again, zeal to set things right. In other words, as he says here, they grieved, but not in an empty or despairing way. They grieved in a way that led them to resolve to live otherwise. And so Paul's grief at grieving is alleviated. He finds comfort, he says, and insists, I have taken comfort at your response. The Corinthian church is not a model for us, as often imagined, the model like the apostolic pure church, the perfect church, a great Christian community. If we can just get back to they're not a model of that. What they are a model here is what a church, a community should be like when confronted with its failings. They heard the rebuke, and even if it caught them off guard, they set themselves to right their wrongs. Now, there's still a lot of things that Paul corrects them for in this letter that we've been reading. Uh, And part of the reason for saying all this is, undoubtedly, he wants them to hear more correction and respond rightly again. But he's talking about their posture, their way of receiving the rebuke. I was told recently of an educational tactic that's kind of making waves or gaining some traction somewhere. I don't know where. But it's where students are made to have a conversation about some open-ended subject, and they have to keep having and stating their own views until they find where they disagree. Then they have to say to one another, I disagree with that, and here is why to one another, right? Uh, It's a hard thing to have to learn how to do, for many of us at least. Now, culturally, of course, we have lots of disagreements. We're very good at finding people at whom we can yell. We just do it kind of behind keyboards or on our phones or things like that. Uh, We even yell at each other as entertainment on shows. But this way, this dance of being called by someone near you into a different way of life and responding with grace towards it. We know that's a hard life, a hard ask. But it's the heart of the Christian life. Over and over again, Paul talks about the Christian life as turning, turning from one way of doing things into another way of doing things, another way of life. Your expression of your faith and love in Jesus as the Messiah comes through turning, being corrected into something else. And we know something of why that is hard. We know something of the shame 
that we feel when we have to be corrected. And to be corrected publicly, like this church in Corinth, in a world where honor and shame were hugely important, well, that's another level altogether of this. And yet we need the correction, and we need a posture required to receive correction. There's an old Anglican pastor once wrote, Once you become satisfied that a person loves you, then you will listen gladly to anything he has to say. I think it's actually a bit more complicated than that. (laughs) I think it's a great thought. I am fully satisfied that my wife loves me, and yet it's still really hard sometimes to hear corrections, even when I know for certain that she's right. But I think he starts to move us in the right direction. Because it's the kind of thing that should be true. And we know it should be true. And sometimes we know it is. Because the language of being satisfied that the speaker loves me means that he is for me. But even more important in that might be what I love most. Since Pastor Christian's gone, I think I can get away with a sports story. Um, (laughs) Most of you will, I think, know the name of Michael Phelps, easily the greatest swimmer of all time. Uh, Phelps has a swim coach, had a swim coach, named Bob Bowman. He had the same swim coach his entire life, from the time he was 10 years old until the time of his retirement, just a few years back. It's an unusual thing to have a coach walk with you through your whole life like that. And though I don't know a whole lot about their relationship, I can certainly imagine that it changed over those years. There were different things that had to be said to a 10-year-old Michael Phelps than, hey, you've won 273,000 gold medals, or whatever it is, Michael Phelps, right? But what didn't change was Bob Bowman, Bowman prowling the lanes during practice every day watching every stroke. And even if there were different things that had to be said, there were always things to be said. Calling out corrections, pushing harder, correcting, rebuking, because he knew what Phelps wanted most, to find any possible way to shave off a fraction of a second in this race. Now, Mr. Bowman is not, I want to emphasize this, Mr. Bowman, in this analogy, is not a good metaphor for God, how God acts towards us, right? Prowling the lines, yelling at us to get better, get better, get better. That's not the point of the analogy, okay? Uh, what it does show us is that we're familiar with the principle. Because what he loves most meant he was open to being corrected. If you're a runner and you want more than anything to shave some time off, you listen to correction. At least when you're at your best. If you want to be a great violinist, you listen to your teacher about how you hold the bow or strike the strings or whatever it might be. I don't know if striking the strings is the right. Nick isn't here to correct me. It's not just a matter of the person loving you. It's also a matter of what you love. 
And that's what Paul talks about here. That's what the Corinthian church modeled. He uses the language of eagerness, of zeal, earnestness. So look at verse 11 there. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Again, we don't know all the meanings of what happened. But at every point, he says, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, the term innocent is important here, not because it's a technical legal term like it is for us much of the time in English. It's the same word as used other places to show yourself holy, clean, pure, fit for coming into worship before God. It's not that they prove themselves not having done any wrong. He's just said they did and they set themselves right. It's that they were zealous, eager, earnest to show that they were pure. That's what they wanted. More than anything else, they were zealous. Or look at the, it's a complex sentence in verse 12, so you may have to look at it there in the bulletins. But Paul says, I wrote the letter not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, not for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness, zeal, that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. There's a lot of people seeing here, a lot of prepositional phrases here, right? But Paul wants them to see just how zealous they were for him, which is shorthand for his message. They needed to see it. They had to see that before God, they were zealous especially for the gospel that Paul preached to be found in Jesus Christ. So you see the principle, I think? They were eager to be faithful. If you're eager to shave off a fraction of a second, you listen to correction. It's the same principle. If you're eager to be more like Jesus, then you listen, even if it stings. So Paul's not taking comfort in a church that was pristine because it did everything right. They were definitely not that. He takes comfort in and says he boasted to Timothy that they were zealous for God, their desire for faithfulness in the sight of God. And then he sat there sending Titus, boasting, (laughs) sending Titus then, hoping it was actually going to be true. So the question of the text for us as a community is are we eager to be found faithful before God above all? And so are we willing to respond to correction? in a way that demonstrates that. Catherine Ruck, our bishop's wife, likes to say that when we find ourselves offended by something God says in the scriptures, whether it's about marriage, sexuality, money, greed, pride, children, a hundred other possible things, thousands, when we are offended by something God says, that's an opportunity for us to work on something. Right? The problem is not in God when I feel offended by him. Now, shaped as we all are by our own culture and our own preferences, our own developed senses and moral intuitions, there are bound to be things that offend, either individually, as families, or as a community. That's always been the case. 
Every generation has found things which offend them. And they tend to be different things, though some tend to be the same. Every generation thinks they are the moral standard. (laughs) Every new generation then comes along and kicks that generation's moral standards out and says, no, actually I am. That's not a new dance. For us, the question is, what is revealed about us in those places where we find ourselves rebuked, corrected, and the posture that we take? Maybe seeing the negative side of the principle can help us, right? Because I think all of us know the same principle at play in the negative. Imagine a world where the thing you want most, or at least that you want, you desire, for which you are zealous quite significantly, is the approval of those around you. The stroking of your sense of being strong or powerful or beautiful or capable or whatever it is. If your zeal is towards that goal, then what happens when you are corrected? Right? If that's the thing I'm loving, then when you correct me, it's crushing or angering, or a hundred other things. Especially if you do it in front of others. Because what I'm wanting most is for them to approve. I know myself how that happens. I know this. How we replay those kinds of corrections, even if they were gentle. And they just stick like a barb in our minds and replay over and over and over again. And the reason they do is because the thing I love in that moment was me. Now, my suggestion is not to beat, you up, beat yourself up when this happens. That's the grief that leads to death that he talks about. It's a vanity, right? Take note of it, though. Say, oh, I see what's happening in this moment. I'm curious. I'm allowed to be curious about these things. And then think about what it is that I am most eager for. The psalmist writes, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. But then he has to say, Let my head not refuse it. (laughs) Right? It's, I know that's true. Ah, Please make it be true. (laughs) We want to be found eager to love God more than anything else, more than we love ourselves. To be faithful and found faithful. So we tell our own heads, do not refuse it. But we have to tell ourselves that. Or we know we will not listen. So here's the goal. To set ourselves, like the Corinthian church, not to a life without need of correction, but to an eagerness to be found faithful in the sight of God. Not because we want to be morally superior, I don't know what that means, or because morality is really good, I don't even know what that means, but because we love God more than anything else. Another old writer, old pastor wrote, I esteem Christ above all. Give me Christ and take from me what you will. Even if it's my public name, even if it's some of my reputation, some of my well-curated love of self? What if it's some of the convictions that I hold 
these intuitions that I've developed culturally. Give me Christ. I esteem Christ above all. So I am willing. Take from me these things. It may be that the correction stings, but our work must be to love most what we should love most. Christ above all. And then unite humility with zeal towards our first love. Let's pray. Father, we know our hearts. We know how much our own love of self gets tangled up, even good things. A love of affirmation, which you created us to need and want affirmation, gets tangled up and grabs hold of our hearts so that it rivals Christ. Father, make us a community that wants above all to be found in Christ, to be found innocent, pure, clean in Christ. Give us this grace. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.